Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. No one really for a very long time could have possibly envisaged a day when an Irish nationalist party that doesn't even recognise Northern Ireland's existence would be in the position to nominate a first minister. Sinn Féin is the largest political party in the Northern Ireland Assembly. And it's the joint largest party in the Republic's doll. Today ushers in a new era, which I believe presents us all with an opportunity to reimagine relationships in this society on the basis of fairness, on the basis of equality and on the basis of social justice. The polls point to the party becoming even stronger in the years ahead and to the possibility that it will lead a government. We will not consider coalition, which in fine, um, oil and water doesn't mix. It's not just about the past, um, it's more about the future. Um, they're a high-tax, anti-trade, anti-jobs party. Um, they're populists, um, they're nationalists uh, of the worst sort, uh, often sectarian. Sinn Féin's history with the IRA, its drive for a united Ireland, and its notoriously rigid internal discipline distinguishes it from all other political parties. But what's it really like behind closed doors? And what would a Dublin government led by Sinn Féin look like? I think they have made a lot of promises that they can't keep. Basically completely reliant on corporation tax and FDI from huge multinational conglomerates who are there not going to want to overtax because if they overtax they will leave the Republic. So the notion of a 32 county socialist republic is not possible in the way that people think it's going to happen. Journalist Stephen Moore has just written a book on the party addressing those very questions. It's called The Long Game Inside Sinn Féin. And I'm pleased to say Aoife joins me on the line. Aoife, you're very welcome to the Bell Tell. Um, Thank you. Writing a book is an arduous task. Uh, mm-hmm. It takes a lot of time. It's a big commitment. It's a big gamble in many ways because you're spending a lot of time and you're putting everything into this one product in the end. It's not like writing an article for the paper. Why did you do this? I always thought at some point that I would write a book. Um, I didn't know what about. And then throughout my career, um, I kind of, especially living in the Republic, I kind of made um, a bit of a brand out of explaining what would be very complicated aspects of Northern Ireland politics. Um, in a more accessible way to people who love in the Republic because there is quite a lot of ignorance um, about the North and the Republic. Um, and it's something that has always bothered me. It is something that has made my life quite difficult. <laughs> um, and it was just something I thought was needed. And the, the 
continual rise of popularity in Sinn Féin then gave rise to more and more ignorance. Ignorance about Sinn Féin, where they came from, and the North. And I was already thinking about it when Penguin contacted me. And they said that they wanted a book about Sinn Féin. And I thought it was a good idea. And I ventured to write a contemporary, I don't know if it's a history, but a contemporary history about how Sinn Féin, who they are, how they are, where they came from and how they operate. Um, because I do believe that young people in the South are becoming more Republican. Now, I don't know if it's a chicken or the egg type thing. You know, I don't know if it's because Sinn Féin are popular that Republicanisms get more popular or popular or Republicanisms get more popular. So Sinn Féin's get more popular. But I have been concerned not only about the demonization of young people um, who joined paramilitary organizations in the 1960s and 70s in a horrendous uh, conflict time. But I've also been really concerned about the romanticization of the IRA or the glamorization of the troubles. So I haven't set out to villainize anybody in this book or, or anything like that. It's to explain who Sinn Féin are because I think if they're going to run the country, for want of a better word, north and south, there hasn't really been a decent book. And I'm, I'm not saying that um, to malign the other authors, but Sinn Féin are so secretive. It is hard to write a decent book about that party um, for a very long time. And I thought now was the time. Was the, was the party at an official level helpful or, or no. discouraging? <laughs> Sinn Féin were... Um, unhelpful at best, obstructive at worst. They made it very clear from pretty early on they didn't want this book to be written. I was told after numerous emails that I was no longer to contact them. I received a, an email from their solicitor who told me I was no longer to contact the press office, that I was to contact the solicitor. Being the type of person I am, I ignored the email and printed it out and now it's the second page in the book. <laughs> um... But Mary Lou MacDonald was one of the first people I told about the book. She was relatively pleased. She said that my parents must have been proud of me. And um, she said that she was going to tell Pierce and Michelle and that they would they would speak about it. And then for the next year, I was messed around um, from pulled from Polarity Post. I was told TDs were told not to speak to me. MLAs were told not to speak to me. Appointments were cancelled. I had a meeting organised at one point with Michelle O'Neill and Connor Murphy. I drove two hours to Belfast and by the time I got to Stormont, they told me that they weren't there. And so on it went um, to the point where I stopped contacting um, Sinn Féin in any way, shape or form. I was then given one interview with Jerry Kelly in which he never answered any question directly. And I gave up after 20 minutes and left. Um, so then how, how do, I mean... Did, how did you get past the barrier then? So how do we because get to the stage? Of, because it's much easier. It was much easier for people to talk to me when they didn't tell the party they were talking to me. So the book is carried out. The The interviews are anonymous, as many of these types of books are, um, not only because of the IRA element, but because a lot of people who were interviewed for the book are still in Sinn Féin. They still come from Republican backgrounds and Republican families. A lot of them are IRA, former IRA, still believe in the oath that they took. So the interviews are carried out anonymously. Many people within Sinn Féin uh, at the minute still did speak to me. They just didn't tell the party they were speaking to me because the party, as far as I'm aware, were actively telling people not to speak to me. Um, and then 
it got to a point where Mary Lou McDonald went on News Talk about a year and a half later and she was asked if I had asked her for an interview and she said that was to the best of her knowledge I had not. So it became very uh, obstructive and confusing and at the start I took it very personally. <laughs> um, people who I would have had a pint with in the Dole Bar um, ignored me in the corridors. People would not answer their phones. I went to the Ardèche and it was like being a radioactive spider. Every time I walked towards people, they walked the other direction. Uh, I was like Moses parting the Red Sea for a while. Um, but I got it done. Um, but it was not easy. Um, there had been days where, to be honest, I nearly threw my laptop out the window. Um, there's a lot of tears <laughs> out of frustration. Um, but it got done. Aoife, you've mentioned in this... Um interview the letters IRA I think it's five times and mm-hmm. in a number of other interviews about this book you've always mentioned that so I suppose I'm very tempted to ask and I'm just going to ask it I mean is the book about Sinn Féin or, or is it about the IRA I mean you, you can't talk about Sinn Féin without talking about the IRA not in the history of Sinn Féin the IRA are not around um are not calling the shots in Sinn Féin now however the book starts in 1981 the book starts at the hunger strike and Sinn Féin came from the IRA and to be honest I don't think uh, I think they are trying to appeal to a different audience now but they have been shied away from that you only need to look at hunger strike commemorations and Bobby Story's funeral they know that they do not shy away from that part of it they do talk in very watery language now about victims and legacy and all of that but you cannot talk about you know Sinn Féin I would say I think they would agree, but I think Sean Fein's greatest achievement is the peace process. But the reason there was a peace process is because we needed an IRA ceasefire and we also needed uh, concessions from the British state. So do you argue that you could talk about Sean Fein's like talking about the IRA? I don't think it would be a very good book. What stands out for you? I mean, what's what's the best part of the book from your point of view? Um, I think the ability to bring people who were so entrenched in conflict, men who had joined the IRA at 16, and then in their 50s could be talked out of violence, could be talked in the peace, could be talked to laying down their weapons and also to bring a community with them. I mean, there are thousands of people and I know obviously in the loyalist and unionist community there are as well, but I'm talking specifically about Sinn Féin. There are thousands of people who have family who were maimed and killed by the British Army or loyalist forces. And to be able to convince they didn't have to convince everyone, but they did have to convince their base. And their base were people who had been very, very hurt, fatally hurt by those forces. And to convince them that peace was the way forward, because a lot of people really weren't sure about the peace process in the Republican community, still aren't. And I think the ability to bring the entire base with them um, to peace is something that they should be incredibly proud of. And I think as well, nationalist parties... Um, not in Scotland or here, but nationalist parties the world over have done, have gone the other way from Sinn Féin. They have slid into the right wing where they demonise refugee communities and immigrant communities and they use nationalism as Ireland for the Irish. That is not what Sinn Féin has done. And what they have done in Dublin up until a point until, well, I would say until the last couple of years, Sinn Féin went into working class communities and their message was not to demonise vulnerable immigrant communities. It was to point out the issues with the current government. And a lot of people, a lot of journalists, even we give them credit in, in the Republic for in those working very working class communities 
in, in Dublin, especially in Cork, that we didn't slide into a right-wing um, uh, revolt after the last crash because Sinn Féin were not banging that drum and they could have very easily done that and other nationalist parties across the world have done that if you just look at Italy and, and Spain. So I think they have a lot to be proud of, but they also have a very dark history and I think that's why they didn't want me writing the book. The book starts in 1981. Obviously, since 1981, Sinn Féin was dominated by two men. That was Jerry Adams and Martin mm-hmm. McGuinness. Did you manage in the book to give us any more about that relationship? Who was in charge? What that relationship was like? Uh, yeah, Jerry was in charge. Um, Martin would have deferred to Jerry. Not publicly, but personally would have deferred to Jerry. Um, I don't think he was necessarily intimidated by him. But there was a feeling that Jerry had the final call. Most people I met, that's politicians, security services, government, civil servants. Um, most of them preferred Martin. They said Martin was much more trustworthy. He was easier to deal with. Um, he could be very scary, very cold, but they would have preferred Martin in terms of negotiations. Jerry has a really good reputation with the younger people uh, who work for Sinn Féin, younger M- MLAs. Um, which is quite at odds, I think, with his public persona sometimes. You know, a lot of young women I spoke to and young men who currently work for Sinn Féin or are young MLAs, they had a really good word to say on Jerry Adams, which I was surprised at. And saying that, having met Jerry Adams a number of times through work, he is a very affable, charming person. Um, but I suppose to lead a movement, you have to be. But I think the strangest thing or the most surprising thing for me was that in the book, through my investigation in the book, I found that Martin McGuinness wanted Jerry Adams to stand down um, during the time of the revelations about his niece, Anya Adams. Jerry had known uh, for a long time, because Anya told him, that his brother Liam had been raping her since she was a child. And when it emerged in the press, Martin McGuinness wanted Jerry to stand down as the leader of Sinn Féin until it all blew over. Um, Jerry Adams refused, nothing changed, and... We all know how it worked out. You can clearly see that sometimes in situations like this, people like to take political advantage without recognising, for example, the trauma that the Jerry Adams' family went through as a result of the abuse uh, that was inflicted on them by their father. And in many ways, that entire family are victims, including Jerry Adams. But I thought that was... Um, quite a pivotal moment because there are certain things in in all violent movements that you can excuse, uh, where the bombing, you know, the murder and the mayhem. But it did very much appear that the sex abuse, not only with Anya Adams but with Maria Cahill as well, was something that almost brought Jerry Adams down within his own party because it is not something that the party and the base were willing to excuse. Is there any indication in the book as to why Jerry Adams? did not decide in the end to stand aside after the revelations as to, as to, as to his brother. He didn't want to, for starters. Um, Jerry Adams is not a person who can be told what to do. And he said that if he stood down, it would create an impression that there was something to stand down for, that he had in some way acted wrongly. And he insisted that he hadn't, so he refused to stand down. And the meeting in which... They tried to oust Jerry Adams, never really got off the ground. When Jerry Adams left the scene eventually, he mm-hmm. handed over the reins. Well, I mean, obviously there was a process, but 
I think if you look back many, many years ago, not many people would have expected Mary Lynn MacDonald to be the person who would no. uh, who, who would become president of Sinn Féin. You mentioned that you, you didn't get an interview specifically with Mary Lou about this book, but you would have spoken to her in the past. Mm-hmm. What's your impression of, of Mary Lou? What's, how, how do you think someone of Mary Lou's background managed to become the president of Sinn Féin? She's an incredible politician. Mary Lou, Mary Lou is very good with people. Um, she has a very warm personality. She's very charming. She's very like Jerry in that instance. She can adapt her personality to her surroundings. She puts people at ease. And I think whether that's at an IRA commemoration for uh, hunger strikers or volunteers, or it's, you know, in the Schenkel Road doing across community things, she can mold her personality and do what's needed. And that's the consummate politician. And I think that's how she's ended up the leader of Sinn Féin. She's incredibly intelligent um, and she's very determined. I think that comes across in the book. And I think Jerry Adams knew that he needed to get the polar opposite of him in order to, I think Sinn Féin had gone as far as they could with Jerry Adams and the head, the front of the Republican movement. And he knew that he needed the exact opposite. And who is the exact opposite of, you know, a West Belfast, former prisoner with um, a dark history than a middle-class, privately educated woman from Brathgar, a mammy with two kids and um, a Fianna Fáil background. In the end, what's your conclusion in the book? I mean, I'm not <laughs> I'm not trying to get the book for free here, but we would... I think, You're getting it for free every... anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, that's true. Say nothing. Uh, <laughs> But your conclusion, I mean, after spending so much time concentrating on Sinn Féin, mm. I mean, what is your what what's your conclusion about what comes next? I mean, obviously, as we speak, Sinn Féin ride high in the polls. Yeah. Um, many journalists, many politicians, many rival politicians to Sinn Féin see that in apocalyptic terms. Mm. I think they have backed themselves under the corner. I think they have made a lot of promises that they can't keep because the health and housing system is so bad in the Republic. I am only speaking about the Republic, I'm not speaking about the North, but um, I think as well, the fact if you base your campaign on we're the outsiders and you're the elites and that kind of message, that's not going to play once they get into government because then you are the elite. This notion that everybody hates us isn't going to fly when you're the Taoiseach. Um, So... I think they are very good campaigners and I feel like they offer an alternative. It's very easy to offer a lot of alternatives when you're in opposition. And I think they know that. I am not under any illusions that they're stupid about this. The way they are talking about it at the minute is they know they need at least two terms to try and sort out the housing system in the Republic. I think they have cultivated the most impressive front front bench in the Dole. Like if you look at Fina Gaines front bench, probably next, if, I'd say Sinn Féin and then next would be Fina Gaines. But if you look at Sinn Féin's front bench compared to Fina Falls, I mean, light years ahead in terms of their policy coverage. You know, people are worried to debate Louise O'Reilly. They're worried to go up and they come out of Pierce Doherty. These are people who are over their portfolio. And I think that's what they'll campaign on, is that these are the people, they are not just TDs anywhere, they are experts in their portfolio. And it's very good politics. Um, and I think we Mary Lou at the helm. The next the next elections is theirs if they want it. But there are still huge hangovers from 
the military organization that they once were, how they operate um, within the party is incredibly strange. How secretive and disciplined and uh, it's there's a lack of um, autonomy for the TDs um, in terms of what they can say and what they can't say. You know, I could phone up a Fianna Fáil TD tomorrow and say, I need a line on this. And they would just tell me the answer straight away. If you phone up someone or something, they'll need to come back to you because they'll need to speak to the press office. And it's that sort of discipline. And, and like, I know Champagne supporters will be listening to this and say, well, that's just good politics. But that's not how it's going to work in government. The other issue is that if they need to, they always say they can't change a policy unless it goes to Ardesh. You can't go to an Ardesh every time you need to change a policy in government. Um, and it's not going to be the same as the North because we know that the North and Stormont's a completely different kettle of fish. And they have ran, a, ran their party, for want of a better term. There are two different parties, North and South. The Southern party is much more liberal especially when it comes to things like abortion, they will say that their abortion policy is the same north and south, and it is, but the attitudes are very different. And I think what they're going to have this time, and this is something that the Green Party had in the last elections, was when they become very big, the party becomes a lot of things to a lot of people. It becomes a very broad church. And the bigger they get, they need to decide on what is, first of all, what is collateral damage? What are they willing to give up for government? We've already seen them lose their long-held policy of support, of, of boycotting the, the Special Criminal Court. That's gone. Something we never thought we would see. So I think there'll be some very disappointed people in the next government if they get in, if they don't sit down now and decide this is what we're willing to compromise on, this is what we're going to uh, promote because government is very, very hard. And it's not going to be like in the North where you can say, well, it's not just us because it's the DUP and it's SALP and it's Alliance and blah, blah, blah. You're on your own here. Um, and they won't be able to blame Fianna Fáil or Social Democrats or whoever they end up going on the way because they'll be the biggest party. Might it be those on the left of Sinn Féin who will be um, disappointed? For example, let's yeah. just give an example. I mean, for many people, especially in the younger wings of Sinn Féin, you know, support for Cuba, it is unlikely. Yeah that Ireland would leave the Western world and join Put it this the way, other world. The notion, the notion that Ireland and the, not even just the South, but Ireland is an island, but the notion of a 32-county socialist republic is completely impossible when Dublin and the republic is com basically completely reliant on corporation tax and FDI from huge multinational conglomerates who are there not going to want to overtax because if they overtax, they will leave the republic and then there'll be huge unemployment. So the notion of a 32-county socialist republic is not possible in the way that people think it's going to happen. And I would be very interested to see how they work support for Palestine, because when and if they get into government, they will be, and they still they are at the moment, Champagne are very reliant on America. You've seen, you know, Mary Lou McDonald meeting Joe Biden, and support for Cuba and Palestine isn't really going to fly, um, and they're not going to want to annoy America either especially the Democrats. So it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. I don't have any guesses. Um, I don't know how it'll work, but it is something I would definitely be watching out for, as well as their stance on NATO. These are all very difficult, complicated questions they'll have to deal with if they get into government. What was the biggest surprise for you in the book? The bank, the bank accounts. Okay, tell us. Um, yeah, so there is a part in the book about when MLAs... Um, and uh, got elected and special advisors got elected that they would open a new bank account um, in their name 
and they did not have access to this bank account and Sinn Féin had the bank card. And that uh, stormant, their official stormant wage, so say if you were a special advisor and you were paid, I don't know, this is completely hypothetical, but say you're paying 65 grand a year, and that stormant wage would go into that bank account as normal. And the bank account that you had before you were staff of Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin would pay your wage of the average industrial wage of 40 grand uh, into the bank account you held before. And they held the the bank card and all the details to the bank account that they made you open. There was something very um, Scientology, I felt, about it. Aoife Moore, thank you very much. Thank you. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, the Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.